Over in Switzerland, there's a company called Klimaworks that manufactures these machines about the size of a walk-in closet. They're called CO2 capture plants, and each one pulls about 40 tons of the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere every year. That's enough to offset the emissions of two average Americans. The pure carbon dioxide could then be pumped into greenhouses where plants bearing fruits, vegetables, and grains breathe it in, turning the carbon into food, plant matter, and soil while exhaling the oxygen. Because the levels of carbon dioxide are so concentrated, the yields in these greenhouses are about 20% higher than normal. Up in Iceland, the company has built a giant array of these things and hooked them up to a geothermal power plant, which uses the Earth's own heat to make electricity. Geothermal plants do emit a small amount of carbon dioxide themselves, but the machines capture enough to offset that and they infuse it into the porous rocks deep underground where it stays for centuries. The geothermal plant is, as a result, carbon negative. It generates power while removing more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than it emits. You can, in theory, take this technology a step further, extracting pure carbon, which you feed into 3D printers that make prefab parts for, say, homes or farm equipment, power them with solar energy, and you could have a carbon-negative factory that literally makes things from thin air while reversing climate change. It's the kind of technology that stirs men's souls and makes you believe we can beat this climate thing. But there's a catch. For now, this exciting new technology costs between $600 and $1,000 per ton of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. Don't get me wrong, it may one day put us over the hump, but when it comes to carbon capture and storage, there's a technology that can get us 37% of the way to meeting the Paris Climate Agreement targets. Sometimes without costing a dime, sometimes at just $10 per ton, and often while increasing food yields and reducing the cost of farming. Yet less than 3% of all carbon finance flows into this exciting technology. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, Add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today's guest, Bronson Griscom, has explored that impact more deeply than almost anyone I know. 
He's the director of forest carbon science for the Nature Conservancy. And last year, he headed up a team of three dozen researchers from almost two dozen institutions tasked with identifying once and for all the realistic potential of using nature as a bulwark against climate change. I caught up to him in November at year Climate Talks in Bonn, Germany. We're focusing on a report called Natural Climate Solutions, which you can probably find with a simple Google search, or you can visit the show notes for today's episode at bionic-planet.com. This will be episode 31. If you've ever been to these climate talks, they're kind of a mess, spread out over several acres with security checkpoints everywhere and meetings happening constantly and in parallel. I've been trying to pin down Griscom since reading his report before the talks began, and we finally caught up to each other at a side event focused on carbon capture and storage, which is where I learned of the technology that I mentioned earlier. We both came out of the event pretty pumped about what we'd just learned, and that's where this interview picks up. I have this vision of these machines all over the world pulling carbon out of the air and infusing it, injecting carbon dioxide into greenhouses so that the plants grow fast and really wonderful and then pumping other stuff into 3D printers and cranking it out. They're just pulling money out of the air. And you, you, know, you're, uh, you, you were excited about it too, but you brought up an issue that I thought was kind of interesting, that uh, you're worried about this, this new, exciting, and uh, kind of next-generation technology could take away from some of the things that are here right in front of us right now. Right? Is, is that kind of what you were? Yeah. So, Steve, I, I absolutely share your optimism coming out of that, um, that event. Having said that, what I still struggle with is that there is currently a limited pool of financing, of investment in climate solutions. So the land sector is, is, is receiving about 2.5% of the... The, the financing that's going into climate mitigation and over 30% of the cost-effective climate mitigation is available from conservation, restoration, and improved practices on the land. Meanwhile, mitigation options are available immediately. There's no technological advancement needed. It's scalable, right? Photosynthesis happens everywhere on the planet. Um, and and it's so you know it's already happening everywhere on the planet, um, and there are a series of of associated benefits that no technology will ever provide, right? Biodiversity conservation, um, you know, among many other things, soil fertility, uh, water filtration, you know, air air filtration. You know, technologies might be developed that that uh, build in some of those co-benefits, but. Um, really, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that, that a technology will, will build in all of these, certainly not right, biodiversity. Right, right. So, bottom line is, I have tremendous optimism, and I think we have, to be, um, we have to be investing in those technologies, but at the very same time, we also need to figure out how to address an imbalance in the proportion of the existing investment that's going to, to land-based mitigation. And let me just what's, let me just mention the name of your report so people can download it. This came out when this was uh, what's called Natural Climate Solutions, huh? That's a yeah, nice, that's a yeah, nice it just simple came name. out a couple of weeks ago. These reports they usually have these big, long, complicated names, and this is we did make an effort to keep it simple, 
in you know in some of our terminology, just acknowledging that that scientists have a bad history of of, of very dry and uh, unappealing titles. It's very accessible too. You look at all different biomes, and you broke things down by twenty different land-based strategies. Then you looked at not just the mitigation potential, uh, or but you also looked at the costs and cost effectiveness. So it's a very practical guide. It's not just crazy out there stuff. And you looked also at a lot of really interesting things about how much of this land can reasonably be. You didn't. You're not saying let's yeah. all go back to green. You said what what's available and what isn't. Yeah. I found so that we really put what we called safeguards. We wanted to start the conversation from what's actually, at least potentially, socially desirable. Mm -hmm. And we know it's not socially desirable to not have food security. Mm -hmm. You know, we know it's not socially desirable to lose fundamental ecosystem diversity. So the good news is that for, for land-based mitigation options, the vast majority of them are win-win. But the, the critical issue is that there are some options which can be win-lose. And so essentially we said, look, we're, we're not going to talk about the win-lose. We're only going to talk about the win-win or win-neutral. Mm -hmm. And you basically identified 24 gigatons of, the, of emission reductions That's right. per year, right? Or was that over um, the course? Yeah, of let me just qualify that, though. So it's, um, yeah, 23.8, 24 billion tons CO2 per year of mitigation potential. And that that includes both avoided emissions and additional sequestration. Okay, so both sinks right. and avoided sources. A simple comparison would be avoided deforestation would be an avoided emission, reforestation would be an enhanced sink. Right. Um, in the ag sector, you have a number of better practices, such as cover crops, you know, during the off season, better grazing practices that will increase the sink into the soils and actually creates more fertile soils as a win-win there. But there are other ag practices that are in avoided emission. So um, avoiding the excessive use of fertilizers is actually amazing the extent to which fertilizers are essentially over-applied just because farmers don't, don't have a, a sophisticated uh, methods, uh, even though they're available, they have, they're not being used in many places to target the application of fertilizers to actually optimize the growth of the plants but not burn them. Right. And so, um, so there's an example where you're you're actually saving money mm -hmm. by um, optimizing the the application of fertilizers and avoiding an emission. So bottom line is, there's both avoided emissions and additional sinks in both the forestry and the ag sectors, as well as in the wetland sector, which right. we bring into the equation. Did you look at uh, agroforestry as well as a? We because that's a field that I've. I've just discovered it. <laughs> yeah. It didn't exist until I found it two years ago, but it's, a, <laughs> right. it's just fascinating to see what, what yeah. you know, when you visit these farms in Kenya and places and you see what the, the places that are using kind of old school farming and then you go right next door and they're doing agroforestry and you see trees and you've got corn, you got, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. What keeps kind of coming back to me on agroforestry is I just keep thinking it could be a, life, a lifestyle choice in places like the U.S. even. Yep. Even though it's not, you know, from a, mega mega production standpoint it's not the, the way to go yeah. but um, in Kenya one thing I found is people who <clears throat> have grown up in the city and they're becoming fairly successful they want they go and they buy a farm they move their parents moved into the city there's this whole back to the land right. movement in Kenya yeah. and it's people buying small farms yeah. and treating them as a hobby that that makes money is, did you look at this at all am I uh, yeah no we did having said that it being a global analysis we didn't get you know nearly as granular as the kind of story you're telling. Right. But, but let me just emphasize that, that that's the kind of story that we're excited about and that is embedded in a, an actually 
um, at least two of the pathways. So the two main pathways, so again, just to, just to clarify that we use the term pathway to refer to a category of action, a type of action that we can take to either avoid emissions or increase sinks in terrestrial ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Two of those pathways are where agroforestry plays in. One of them is called trees in croplands, mm -hmm. and the other one is reforestation. Because agroforestry is actually a very, it involves a tremendous range of options from adding one tree across a, a hectare or, or an acre to provide forage for your cattle at one extreme to an actual forest that's a full, you know, it's got, it's completely tree dominated. On, the, on one extreme, agroforestry can be really dominated by annual crops and more of an sort of, you know, a, a cropland system, but with trees. And the other extreme is a cultivated forest system. So that's why we had sort of div divided those up. But the bottom line is that one of the things that's so exciting, and this is counterintuitive, right? But what's in, is so exciting to me is in the process of running this analysis is realizing all of the places in which land use is wrong or, or problematic, mm -hmm. which, which points to all the opportunities we have to do a better job. So the notion that there, there's sort of these fundamental conflicts between feeding a growing human population and storing carbon on the land, I, th I think a lot of people have fears about that. And, and we should, because we, we got to make sure that we avoid those kind of conflicts between actually you know, feeding people and, and restoring landscapes. But th there's a shocking extent to which there are not trade-offs. <laughs> and, and so one example in agroforestry is that temperate uh, agricultural systems have been exported to the tropics. And part of that history of exporting grains and annual sort of crops to the tropics has been using production systems in the tropics that, that aren't actually the most effective production systems given the type of soil and given the type of climate in those systems. So w what that means is that in a lot of tropical systems, you can actually you can produce more and, and in a more a resilient way, less susceptible to fluctuations in, in climate by shifting from annuals to, to tree-based crops. Because in the tropics, there are a lot of different trees that produce food. Um, so You're talking about like in the Amazon, you go through what used to be the, the Amazon forest, and now they've cleared the, these trees away, and you've got corn or you got soybeans growing there. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and in fact, we've, you know, back in the day, right, sort of during the colonial era, there's the notion of like, oh, there's all this wild forest that we're clearing to put in crops. Turns out a lot of those forests were actually cultivated forests, you know, by people. Yeah. We're doing a hyper-simplified version of kind of history here. But the bottom line is that there are tremendous opportunities to produce food from agroforestry systems that store a lot more carbon. And these opportunities are particularly dramatic in the tropics. Yeah, yeah. The Amazon is a cultivated forest for thousands of years. The indigenous people were selectively extracting trees that weren't, they were getting rid of the trees that didn't yield fruit, and they were letting the ones that grow fruit. This is what you were talking about, right? Yeah. And I just, that was another one of these epiphanies that uh, was new to me a couple right. of years ago, and I just find that, I find that so interesting. Yeah. I experienced that epiphany while listening to an audiobook called 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann, which you can buy at audible.com. If you're new to Audible, you can get it for free and help support Bionic Planet by signing up for a 30-day trial 
at audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. That's bionic planet as a single word with no dots, dashes, or spaces. The address again, audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet. Or if you really like the show and think this is important material that others should hear as well, you can share Bionic Planet with friends, and you can give me a solid five-star review on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you access me. That helps us all, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. The more ears I get, the more brains I reach. Finally, you can also become a member for as little as $1 per month at bionic-planet.com or Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Once again, that's bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. As you may have noticed, I'm shifting my support from the old system to Patreon. If you want to migrate over, feel free to do so, but it's not necessary. I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 monthly cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes per month, you won't get whacked either. You identified about 30% more potential mitigation than previous studies. Why, why is yours so, so much higher than what other people found? What did you look at that they didn't see? You know, frankly, it was initially a bit of a head-scratcher because we, um, we were not expecting uh, to get a, a higher overall number than other studies. And so we actually had to go back and look at, and, and try, to, try to answer that question for ourselves. And what we realized is that there are a number of pathways that were not fully included in, in any other prior assessment. There are a variety of prior assessments that have been done, some of which focus on particular regions of the world, such as the tropics, um, excluding you know, temperate and boreal zones. There are other studies that include some pathways globally, but not others. But there are no pathways that include, fully include, um, at least to the extent that we have, all three um, biomes that we looked at. So, so wetlands, agricultural and grassland systems, and forests. Um, and did so globally. And in particular, so just, get, just for some examples, wetland systems had been relatively ignored. They were not fully included in the last IPCC report. Some aspects of wetlands were, but many aspects were not. Um, so when I say wetlands, by the way, I'm talking about a whole range of ecosystems from mangroves to um, what are called you know, peat swamps, which is a freshwater wetlands, other types of coastal wetlands like salt marshes, uh, seagrass beds, Another category are, uh, just as an example, is things like savanna burning, so early season savanna burning that better mimics natural fire regimes um, can increase uh, carbon storage in um, sort of transitional grassland uh, savanna ecosystems. Um, so that's another example of something that we, we think was, has not been picked up before and included. So bottom line is uh, we filled gaps, and we think that's the reason why our number is... Uh, higher than prior studies. And uh, forests are where the most potential is, and then wetlands were number two, right? Wasn't that the... Um, actually, I think, I think it's um, agriculture. Sorry, yeah, agriculture is the number two. Okay. And wetlands were, were number three. Did you factor in the other greenhouse gases as well? Or we, we did. Okay, because I saw yeah. you, you alluded to that here, but I wasn't sure if that was actually in the final... Yep, yep, it, it, we did. We included, um, you know, all uh, greenhouse gas 
uh, emissions that were significant enough to warrant um, including. And, and I will say this, is that the proportion of non-CO2 greenhouse gases that are at play in the land sector is lower than the overall proportion for all, all anthropogenic emissions, which is just to say that, that CO2 emissions tend to particularly dominate in the land sector. Okay. Having said that, there are very important exceptions to that in terms of you know methane emissions in, in, in wetland systems. Um, From standing water. Uh, right, th- that's right. I mean, yeah, exactly. Methane plays an important role in kind of in, in, in wetland systems um, as well as in, in, in uh, livestock cattle uh, systems. Nitrogen is a, is a critical factor in better fertilizer management. So there are a variety of exceptions, but CO2 dominates. You looked at this globally and you said, okay, this is what we could do if cost were not an issue. Yep. And then you said, okay, now let's kind of go the next step. Let's look at this realistically and yep. say, this, this put in the cost. And what would be, like when you start looking at the most cost-effective solutions that we could implement, what were some, is there one that you would want to maybe run through and, and highlight? Yeah, so we highlight a few of the most cost-effective. So, yeah, so we, we, we essentially did two price points. One is uh, set at a price that would be saving money based upon the expected cost of climate change. Mm-hmm. So climate change is expected to cost more than $100 per ton of CO2 in the air to society. Mm-hmm. So if we were totally rational creatures, we would say, okay, then I should pay at least $100 to avoid a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere. Right. So we, we, we use that as, as one price point to say, okay, essentially, what is the rational investment level in each of these pathways? And then we said, okay, let's, that's, but that's $100 per ton. Society right now is not yet willing to pay that amount. On the other end, there's the, there's the amount that we already are already investing in climate mitigation in certain parts of the world. California is the best example in the U.S., uh, where they're already paying, I think it's like $12, $12 per ton of CO2. So, yeah, so then we, 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 we also looked at that level to say, hey, where's the low-hanging fruit? Where's the stuff that's kind of like, you know, we should be doing this right now based upon existing financing mechanisms. Some examples. So avoided forest conversion is one of the, is, is the second largest pathway that we discovered, but it is the largest pathway in terms of the lowest cost $10 per ton opportunity. The $10 per ton is based on the price of, like, say, a voluntary offset? You can have different types of mechanisms for um, valuing carbon. You know, so it could be a carbon tax. It could be, you know, where, where, the, where the revenues for that tax are then invested in um, types of solutions. It could be a, a cap-and-trade system, like, like in California. But in any case, the notion is if you were willing to uh, pay for $10 per ton of, of CO2 that is not in the atmosphere and stored instead in living ecosystems, what would be the rational amount of investment in e- any one of these pathways? And the largest option for that level of willingness to pay is avoided forest conversion. Why not reforestation? Because when you convert a forest to a non-forest, you are in the period of a year or two taking 100 plus years of carbon storage from the growth of that forest and putting it into the atmosphere all at once. So th- there's, a, there's a, um, a pulse of emissions. Right, right. Um, whereas when you reforest, you have to wait. Every year it grows a little bit. It right, grows a right, little bit. Right. It grows a little bit. So it, so it just means that, that the annual phenomenon um, is, is much more dramatic when you convert a standing forest. Right. Yeah, I see how you, you use the, it's You're looking at between now and 2030 explicitly here. Yeah, right. so, it, so, so for every acre or hectare of land that you don't clear, 
you you avoid a much bigger emission right, than yeah. the sequestration of every hectare that you begin to reforest gotcha, and plant gotcha. seeds. Um, having said that, there's a lot more land that you can reforest than there is land that's deforested every year. So the flip side to that is that the actual total potential for reforestation is is higher. Right, right, than right. Than avoided deforestation, but. In, in what's called, I think of Herbert, it's called the mitigation hierarchy. Mm-hmm. The notion is, you know, start by, you know, not damaging the system. Right. As kind of a first priority. Um, and then, you know, restore that system. Mm-hmm. So stop, stop, you know, take your boot off the neck of Mother Nature first. And then, you know, help her get stand up and restore her to, to better health. Um, having said that, we no longer have the luxury of taking this in a sort of one thing at a time sequence. Mm-hmm. We've got to be doing these things all at once. Right. And, um, you know, we have, you know, one of the, one of the things that just hit me hard as I, as I just scratched the edge of, you know, of, of working with co-authors on this study to, to run the, the, the projection of the, uh, essentially the climate projections out into the future that we did is the urgency of ramping up our, our climate mitigation across the board with all options as soon as possible. What, mm. you know, what, what's shocking is the extent to which if we delay action for a decade, it's virtually impossible to see how we're going to actually get to limiting warming below two degrees. <laughs> So, how urgent is it? Urgent enough to scare the hell out of every scientific organization on the planet that deals with climate. From the National Academy of Sciences in the United States to the UK Met Office to, of course, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Pretty much any scientific body that isn't funded by the Koch brothers, the Mercer family, and a handful of other kleptocrats agrees that we are at a critical juncture. And if you don't believe me, you can download an audiobook called Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean, or the now classic Dark Money by Jane Meyer, or Merchants of Doubt by Naomi Oreskes. All are available at Amazon.com or in audiobook format at Audible.com. first-time user of either service, you can help me build a counter-propaganda war chest to improve Bionic Planet and bring you more and better episodes. If it's Audible you want, then sign up for a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet as a single word with no dots, dashes, or spaces. The address again, audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. If it's books you want, just go to bionic-planet.com and click on the Amazon advertisement. That will take you to the Amazon site, and I'll get a few pennies for sending you there. You can also share Bionic Planet with friends, and you can give me a solid five-star review on iTunes, TuneIn, or wherever you access me. Finally, you can also become a patron for as little as $1 per month at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Once again, that's bionic-planet.com or patreon.com 
forward slash bionic planet. Getting back to my interview with Bronson Griscom, we had a hard copy of his report in front of us, and you can find a link to that report in the show notes for episode 31 at bionic-planet.com or by doing a Google search for natural climate solutions. And let me just uh, describe this chart you've got because this is something I would encourage anybody who's listening to go and check it out because it's pretty accessible. It's very easy to see what you're what you're describing. You've got these. You've got the 20 different. Um, activities and then each is broken into a bar the left side of the bar is gray and that's the low cost portion that's kind of the dark gray then you've got the uh the kind of medium gray which is a little higher cost and then the white one is the the just the most you can go i guess right would that be the way yeah yeah most can you go without without passing um essentially the guardrails we put on that the safeguards gotcha okay that's okay now so go ahead go ahead i'm sorry didn't mean mean to interrupt absolutely so um, okay, so so two, you know, two or three other, you know, really low-cost, particularly exciting options that emerged. So one of them is natural forest management. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what we mean by this is primarily fo- natural forests that are managed for timber production. Mm-hmm. You know, something like half of all forests in the world are managed for some some degree of timber production, and about seven percent of forests are in intensive plantations, but the vast majority of the extent of what we're calling working forests, production forests, are essentially natural forests Mm -hmm. that are harvested. So in those really extensive natural forests that are harvested, the practices used to harvest trees in natural forests tend to be pretty sloppy. And what Mm -hmm. that means is is that there's a lot of damage done to the forest while extracting those trees that actually have commercial value, because usually not all the trees in the forest will have commercial value, um, especially in more diverse forests. What I love about this one is that you can professionalize that business model of extracting trees from a natural forest while maintaining the, the wood production and increasing the carbon stocks because you're essentially being more efficient. We're talking about improving a business model to harvest wood while improving the integrity and the storage of forests. It's a huge opportunity across vast areas of tropical forests and temperate forests. I just did a piece on a group called the Dogwood Alliance. I don't know if you know them. I've heard of them, yes. And they did a lot of work with Staples, where Staples was paying, because Staples wanted uh, to increase its supply of uh, certified as sustainable paper. And so they bought carbon offsets from all these small landowners to see if it would be cost-effective to use carbon finance to get these these landowners to shift to FSE certified practices. And uh, what they basically found is it only worked if you had a large piece of land. If it was a smaller one, it just wasn't uh, financially viable. But they did have a video that was really, really clear to see what they did because they just went uh, with uh, one of the one of the companies was a group called the Forestland the Forestland Group, okay, and uh, they're they're a big landowner, and they were just kind of walking through the forest, saying, okay, you see this here? Now this this is kind of dead wood. This tree is unproductive. If we were just doing this the normal way, we would have removed this because it's in the way. But now because we're getting the the carbon payments for this. We're, it, it's actually viable for us to leave these trees standing and go in and more selectively log. That's what you're talking about, I That's guess. That's right? exactly yeah. what I'm talking yeah. about. Let me get, and let me give you one more example. Um, so we've got a, a, a project in um, southern Virginia called, um, it, it's, it's in the Clinch Valley, the Clinch River Valley. And uh, the initial goal of this conservation work that we, the Nature Conservancy, were doing there is uh, we were concerned about an endangered freshwater mussel. Mm-hmm. that was suffering from the lack of water quality, soil erosion that was dumping soil 
you know, into um, streams that was going into the river and killing off this species of freshwater mussel. This is mostly private lands. So what we did is we went and we connected with a number of, of landowners in this pretty remote part of southern Virginia. And um, we, we, we said, hey, we'll make a deal with you. If you sell us an easement, you agree to not develop your land, then we will pay you, the landowner, an annual fee for harvesting the timber. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to pay you you know, the amount that you've been making historically off of just, you know, the primary use of this land, which is, is earning a few bucks from harvesting wood. Mm-hmm. So we say, okay, we're going to pay you an annual fee, and then we, the nature concerns, are actually going to do the timber harvest for you. We're going to manage that. And then we, what we do is we bring in really good foresters to do top-of-the-line, low-impact logging, uh, maintains the jobs in that region where you really desperately need jobs, mm-hmm. Um, maintains wood production, which actually we di- we, we've got to maintain because the alternatives to wood, cement and steel, have higher carbon footprint. Right, right. Um, so uh, maintains that, but dramatically reduces the sediment loads, um, is maintaining that endangered muscle. And then along the way we realized, my gosh, we could sell carbon credits because we're storing more carbon. So it wasn't even in the initial reason we did it, but we realized that that is now the primary financing for that, and it's allowing us to expand that model far beyond the Clinch Valley. Interesting. Uh, getting, getting back to the chart, you'd, you'd mentioned nutrient management before, which is fertilizer, I guess. And I, I see here on this chart that's one of the best low-cost solutions in the agriculture and grasslands uh, section. Can you tell us a little bit about this? In simple terms, it's more targeted use of fertilizers, mm-hmm. which translates to reduce fertilizer application, mm-hmm. but actually applying the fertilizer at the level that is optimal for the crop to grow. A triple win outcome. And let me give you an example of how we're actually doing this in the U.S. We have something called the Soil Health Initiative, and uh, one of the things that we're doing as part of that is working with farmers to improve practices and the technology that's used to apply fertilizers. Mm-hmm. You know, the machinery used to apply fertilizer has high-quality GPS units, mm-hmm that record exactly how much fertilizers are being placed in every square meter of land. Uh-huh. And, and then you can monitor yield, the production, the, the following season and see actually how much they produce. Right, right, okay. and, so you, and then you also can test the soil in many locations and determine kind of mm-hmm. what is the actual you know, micro need across the field and, and really get targeted about your application. So in that example, there's an initial capital investment in, in a technology, mm-hmm. but it saves money over the long term. It improves yields because mm-hmm. when plants get too much fertilizer, they get burned. Mm-hmm. And then here's the kicker. It's helping us deal with the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Because, you, you know, the result of all this over-application of nutrients um, throughout the heartland of the U.S. is draining down into the Gulf of Mexico, creating a massive dead zone. Mm-hmm. That is terrible for fisheries, terrible for diversity in the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got a really important contribution to avoided nitrous oxide emissions, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. You've got improved crop yields. You've got um, better soil health, long-term soil health. And you've got better health of the streams and the river and the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. all for a strategy that over the long haul is saving money for farmers. A lot of the big wins there are in developing countries. And they don't, they don't always require you know, a, big, a big technology play. It can be actually just some basic practices that are used 
I'm, I'm cognizant of the time. Uh, I could go on forever, but, but is there any particular pathway that you wanted to highlight before we wrap up? One more to highlight is what we're calling avoided peat impacts. So that, these are freshwater wetlands, forested wetlands in Indonesia. They can have tens of meters, so like 30 plus feet of peat soil, okay? This dark organic soil that just built up over centuries on those sites. And so what you have is, is the highest density of carbon storage of any ecosystem. You, you can have pretty good agricultural production on those sort of, on those types of soils. But what you need to do in order to transform those peat wetlands into agriculture is dig ditches that drain the water out. And then what happens is as you drain the water out, then all of a sudden that um, rich organic soil starts to decompose and, and it's just emitted into the atmosphere. So what you get is a massive pulse of CO2 into the atmosphere for every every acre. Now, here's a case where there is a, a trade-off here, right? We're talking about the need to halt that conversion of a system into an agricultural productive system. However, uh, the trade-off there is so dramatic that that's kind of where we need to put our foot down and say, okay, look, that's something, that's a place where agriculture simply should not go. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that sometimes some of the big you know, attempts to open up those systems have been complete failures. So they've gone in and ditched and drained vast areas and then discovered that, oh gosh, it actually is not very productive after all. You know, they had this big rice project. Right. Um, and so it's, it's like lose-lose, spent a bunch of money, emitted vast amounts of carbon, and nobody benefits. Okay, and, and one last question. Over in the negotiations, they agreed to fast-track policies around agriculture, um, you know, mostly because so many countries have pledged to reduce their emissions by improving their agriculture practices, but then they realized they couldn't put a number <laughs> on those practices. I mean, do you see this research feeding into that? Is that? I guess I would assume that's your goal, right? Absolutely, or, yeah. and so I think exactly kind of what we are already seeing as a next step, but we hope there's a growing awareness of, is that, look, folks, we now have a whole set of different specific actions that we can take to increase storage of carbon in soils, essentially removing this carbon pollution from the air and turning it into healthier, fertile soils. And here's a menu of options. Some of them are more relevant in some countries than in others. And let's dig in on you know, the actual specific practices, the specific technologies that are, that are going to be relevant in country X for you know, this pathway. So getting down to that granular level of conversation about how to actually implement this stuff, that's where we have to get to because we don't want to stay in the stratosphere of just being inspirational. We've got to get down to action today. Bronson Griscom of The Nature Conservancy closing out this episode of Bionic Planet. If you like what you hear, be sure to share the love by giving me a good rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you access the show. You can also support me financially for as little as $1 per month by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. If enough of you do that, I can deliver more episodes and maybe better produced episodes to boot with a second set of ears and better editing and pacing. And finally, if you listen to audiobooks, you can support by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet for a free 30-day trial at audible.com. The address again is audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's bionicplanet with no dots, dashes, or spaces, as opposed to my website, which is bionic-planet.com. That's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.